Welcome to the Citizens Report for the 15th May 2020. I'm Alicia Barwick. Joining me today is Citizens Party Research Director Robert Barwick. Welcome, Robert. Thanks, Alicia. And on today's show, think big to solve unemployment crisis and trade dispute shows Australia has lost its sovereignty. And the plot. And the plot. <laughs> so firstly today, think big to solve unemployment crisis. Now, with many thousands of Australians facing unemployment due to the coronavirus lockdown, our program to build an Australian national credit bank is long overdue and we need to get it urgently underway. And we've come up with a way to do that, which could happen in a session of Parliament, and that is to uh, modify the Clean Energy Finance Corporation, which was created under the Gillard government, so that it can expand its uh, lending capacity to fund all kinds of nation-building infrastructure projects. Um, now, that um, proposal is in the form of legislation, and we'll be putting it up in the next session of Parliament, which will be in June. And it is now getting increasing support from all layers within Parliament, uh, and in fact, it was raised on the floor of Parliament on Wednesday this week in question time, where Bob Catter MP called on the Treasurer to, quote, unlock the Clean Energy Finance Corporation, a national development bank ready to go to build the nation out of the COVID depression through infrastructure and industry. And he put out a media release to that effect and was also interviewed on Sky News that evening. Elisa, people can watch the video of that exchange with uh, Frydenberg and Angus Taylor actually on um, uh, Facebook, Bob Catter's Facebook page. Go there and see that. It's just a bit long for us to play here today. Um, but although what the, the, uh, Frydenberg and, and Ta Taylor took a certain tack, which was not to engage directly on the investment bank idea, but interestingly, they talked up what the um, they talked up two things what they claim the government's already doing in terms of investing in infrastructure and um, the investments that the Clean Energy Finance Corporation um, uh, is already making, right? They've got, they've got something like $8 billion invested in $28 billion worth of projects. And that's great, but this, what we're saying is, yeah, good, think bigger, right? Because um, we are in an unemployment crisis and there's a whole scandal this week about how the statistics have gone up 1% unemployment while at least 650,000 extra unemployment. Um, you know, the way these people stick to statistics is disgusting, right? They know there's at least, there's probably really 13 plus percent unemployment now. And um, the worry, of course, is just saying that unemployment goes up the, the um, elevator and down the stairs, mm -hmm. right? Well, I'm gonna, the, the thing is, I think it's even worse than that. that that's assuming there's a good economy. Um, the real worry now is because there's no immigration, the property market's going to collapse. That was the driver. What the property market did, the bubble in the property market is the main thing against which the banks lent money. And it was the bank, it was the bank, private banks lending money, which was the credit going through the system. That's what kept our economy going, right? If, if there's a property bubble collapse, the banks can't do that. There's, there's going to be in all kinds of trouble. This is where you've got to step in with the public option, which is what we're proposing, and not put it in bubbles and not just waste money, not paint rocks white, do productive things, 
um, infrastructure and industry, right? And this is what Bob Catter was getting to. So I can say I'm, I'm, I'm very much um, hands-on on this. The, the, like this is occupying most of my day talking to people in Canberra um, and parliamentarians about this issue. The response that we're getting is unprecedented. And for people who've been around the Citizens Party for a while, you know we've fought on bail-in, we've fought on Glass-Steagall, etc. And we get it, we've, we've had a good response. We've never um, permeated the two major parties, not just the minor parties, but the two major parties to the, to the depth we have now on this issue, right? It's, it is unprecedented. So we have an enormous opportunity between now and when Parliament resumes in June. We'll be finalising the legislation that Bob Catter intends to introduce. Um, uh, uh, there will be all sorts of discussions going on behind the scenes, but if people who you want your country to have a future, help us fight for this, right? We can unlock Australia's potential with this um, mechanism, with a, with, a, with a national investment bank. Call your members of parliament, call your senators, call, call local members of parliament, state, like state members of parliament, call councillors. They're all involved in political parties some way. Get them involved in demanding this. Every level, like there's, there's councils all around um, where the bushfires were that are about to go extinct, right? All because, you know, naturally they don't have any money and the government's playing games with that. You could have a reconstruction program funded through this kind of mechanism, right? And with, this is, there's an urgency here that doesn't, there's so much to do in Australia, nobody should be unemployed. Right, we just got to get the we just got to get the decide. Are we do we want to invest in a productive economy or not? And this is what can do be done, and we can make this a real fight and and bash you know break down finally the defences of what the old Labor Party when they used to be on the right track called the money power, right? Because the, it's only these private banks that aren't going to want to in, compete yeah. with a public option like this. But we have to have it. So make the calls, get involved in the campaign. We've, we've, we've got a website. Go to that. Get instructions on who you can call. There's, there's links there to members of parliament and, and um, their contact numbers, etc. Get involved in pushing this because the more they hear from the public, when the discussions are being held among themselves in Canberra, it really turbocharges it, mm. right? They take it much more seriously. Yeah, this um, coronavirus crisis has really exposed the reality that was already there all along, that our economy was shot to pieces and there was no underlying reality to you know the productive activity that we need to encourage and what we're seeing across the world actually is a lot of attention to the kinds of nation building programs that got us out of the great depression i mean roosevelt as as you were kind of indicating roosevelt looked at the economy and said well these are all the things we need to do we urgently need xyz and that was a good impetus to say okay let's get that into motion and as we've talked about on the show he yep. used a similar mechanism to the CFC. And in, here in Australia, we've had people referring back to, of course, Curtin and Chifley. And Anthony Albanese referred to that model of uh, building the nation on Monday in a speech where he called for a revitalisation of high-value Australian manufacturing and investment in nation-building infrastructure, including iconic projects like high-speed rail. And he said we should actually build the trains here, which is, you know, absolutely true. We need to do that. We'll just run a quick clip where he talked about uh, Curtin and Chifley. Curtin and Chifley once spoke of victory in war, victory in peace. They knew that national leadership in times of crisis was about more than mere preservation. It was a question of vision, a question of courage. The vision to imagine greater opportunity for all in peace. The courage to begin that work even in the midst of war. We must show the same vision and courage right now. 
we should relish the prospect of looking back with pride at how we saw off this crisis and then emerged stronger. Well, as far as I regard it, it's very positive that Anthony Albanese is pushing for the fast train idea. And I've, I've spoken, we discussed this on the show last week in terms of what happened with the very fast train proposal from the 1980s and how it went nowhere. Um, I've spoken to railway experts who actually say Elbow's on the right track in terms of the, what he's committed to with a genuine um, high-speed option, right? And this is the sort of thing that can be funded mm -hmm. through this mechanism. I don't, he, so far, he hasn't talked about that, but that's what you've got to talk about. Look, let's make it work in this way. Next week, this is it. We publish a weekly magazine, the Australian Alert Service. Next week, we're going to have a feature in here laying out what the very fast train proposal was 30 years ago um, that was put forward by Dr Paul Wilde. And Dr Paul Wilde was the head of the CSIRO. And the fact that, I mean, he was a, a scientific giant in his day. And people have expressed to me, look, if Paul Wilde thought it was a good project, it must have been a good project, right? That, 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 that was the, the stature he had. Um, it's really worth revisiting because it was just politics and small-mindedness that stopped us from building it. We need to get, overthrow that, think big, and we can transform the country. Now, after the break, we're going to come back and talk about some of the specific projects in addition to the fast train that we can do that with. Um, but call your MP. You need to do it before the 10th of June, which is when they're going to sit. They'll sit for the 10th to the 12th and then the 15th to 18th of June. So we've got our chance to get our legislation up and passed very fast. Be right back. Welcome back to the Citizens Report. We're discussing Think Big to Solve Unemployment Crisis. And in the previous um, few weeks of the Citizens Report, we've discussed the necessity to really crank up major infrastructure projects, um, things like specialised engineering that we need to produce the machinery, the products, medicines and so forth that we need, not just during this crisis, but all the time we need to maintain that capability. Um, things like um, Craig's description last week of what he was involved in with agricultural technologies such as soil enrichment, very fast trains as we just recapped. This week we want to talk about um, a, doing a project equivalent to the Snowy River Mountains scheme and also um, we want to look at the precursor to how our World War II manufacturing miracle uh, took place. So firstly on the Snowy... Well, um, one of the ways to think about this segment, Lisa, is last week we, we spoke about the lost opportunities, right? In the, in the recent decades, Australia's become a land of lost opportunities. We weren't always like that. We once seized the day and did things and did things very significantly. And we, we've put on the back page of the Australian Alert Service, um, we've, we've done this article, Think Big, Australia's $300 billion infrastructure project. And I put there, what would happen in a time like this when we've just, when our national debt, our government debt is skyrocketing to the level it has, right, in, in the context of this crisis. Some politician came along and said, I've got, a, I've got an infrastructure project that'll cost $300 billion, right? How would that go down? Well, I can tell you how it would go down, like a lead blur. Ah, what are you doing? You know, that, that's just so um, unbelievable. It's not funny. Well, Australia once did that. We once had a $300 billion project an equivalent of a $300 billion project, which was the Snow Mountain Scheme. And we had it at a time when we had the greatest level of government debt in our history. At the end of World War II, Australia's government debt was 120% of GDP. 
1949, we launched the Snowy Mountains Scheme. We knew how much it would cost, and it, we, it did co it cost $820 million, right? Um, and, and actually, when it was built over 25 years, it was, it was built on time and on budget. So that $820 million at that time represented 15% of gross domestic product at a time when we had this a, a debt that was so big, right? So 15% of gross domestic product. Um, the equivalent today would be a $300 billion project. But we made this chart, and it's not, the, I just have to add the caveat, the, the chart you're about to see um, uh, compares the cost of the Snowy Scheme in 1950 when it started and 1974 when it finished, and it compares that cost to GDP at the time and, and government debt at the time. And you can see, um, if we zoom in on the first column, you can see how the cost of the Snowy Mountain Scheme was, was, was a significant portion of GDP and government debt. By the time it was finished, GDP had grown tenfold. Now that was in nominal terms, so that doesn't take into account inflation, but it illustrates the point. GDP had grown tenfold in Australia. The debt was larger actually, but much smaller as a percentage, right? 26% of gross domestic product, and then you had the snowy. Why? Because it was things like investment in the snowy that changed our economy. Right? And this is, what, this is what the right infrastructure does, nation-building infrastructure does. You don't have, here's the economy, we're going to add, add this, nation, this project on top of it, and so the new economy is going to be the old economy plus the project. Mm. No, the building of the project transforms the economy right, in a massive way. It's not just the jobs that are directly employed, but it's the transformation of, of agriculture, other local industry and business. Well, if you know, the, if you know where the Murray-Darling, I mean, the Snowy Scheme is a huge, it's actually a water scheme. Right? To get it legally done federally, they had to call it electricity scheme, but the, the main value is in the water that it provided to the Murray-Darling Basin, which, to, which, which is the driest basin in Australia, but it grows food for 60 million people. Right? It's our most productive basin, thanks to this project. Right? And it was, it, was, you know, it was that kind of thinking that transformed the country. We've got to get into that kind of thinking today. So you look at the, the very fast train idea. Right? Um, the last time they cost it is $114 billion. Well, that's very expensive, very, very expensive. That's nothing compared to the Snowy Scheme. And it would develop a lot of Australia as it goes through it. Um, the Bradfield Scheme in Queensland would also be a very expensive scheme, but my goodness, you would have a permanent water supply coming down into the Murray-Darling and things like that. That's how you transform a nation and create jobs. Now, you can also read, which I mentioned uh, in the Australian Alert Service this week, about the precursor to our World War II manufacturing miracle, which came in part through the Munitions Supply Board, which was it existed from 1921 to 1939. The controller general of, who, of which was Arthur Edgar Layton, a very skilled chemist, and he established a capacity within our manufacturing industry by literally putting annexes onto these manufacturers that we could gear up at a moment's notice, which we had to do, of course, during the war, um, to be able to produce high-precision munitions uh, equipment and so forth, um, and built up the skilled personnel, chemists and engineers and so forth, developing the largest and most advanced factory system in Australia, and the brain of it was the munitions supply laboratory to support local scientific and technical expertise. And as the war broke out, Australia was able to produce 80% of the requirements for its local its defence locally. And even um, General Douglas MacArthur observed that we were more self-sufficient than in any other theatre of operations uh, in this Pacific region. This was a very important approach that's so different to what we do today. Think about today how, how the defence industry works. It's called the military-industrial complex. 
they make so many weapons that they then have to create wars to justify having the weapons. What, what, what Leighton did for Australia back then was, yeah, be conscious of security, but you don't want to just make weapons of war, you know, because you hope you don't get into a war, but you've got to have the capacity. So in, as, a, as a way of solving that problem and stimulating manufacturing, they, they, he, like the, 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 um, the, the requirements, the, the refined uh, measurements, etc., for munitions are so much finer compared to a lot of other equipment, right? Um, and so you need really skilled people. They took, they took existing industries, put these annexes onto them, that were the annexes were like laboratories for, for developing these, these, um, this capability of manufacturing weapons, and at the same time it was training the workforce in that existing factory that did something else into that kind of high-skilled area, right? And the whole point that Leighton wanted to make sure that we, we had something that was scalable when we needed it, mm-hmm. right? So that if you needed it, you can push a button and turn manufacturing on. We don't do that anymore, and it was a, it was a very important part of our, our security before, up to World War II, and we need to go back to that kind of thinking rather than the way we do things now. Yep. Now we've got to t- take another break, but we'll be right back to discuss the so-called trade war looming. Welcome back to the Citizens Report. We're now discussing trade dispute shows Australia has lost its sovereignty. So there's been discussion across the media this week about a so-called Australia-China trade war and like everything this is part of the spin that we're seeing in what is completely uh, across the world not just here but a new cold war environment where basic facts are completely ignored and everything is put under the media spin. Um, So of course the topic and we've covered many of them in various previous shows but this week's topic has been Um, China threatening tariffs against our barley exports uh, and stopping the import of some of our meat products from various companies. Um, So this is being labelled a trade war and it's being put down to a Chinese response to our Australia's having called for an inquiry into the coronavirus. But our politicians have admitted in the next breath that, for instance, the barley dispute has been in the works for 18 months. It was always due to come up this week. It was the deadline and we haven't acted on it. And also in the case of the meat imports, or our exports, I should say, it's been a big issue for the Chinese for some time because of meat substitution fraud going on and they've requested that we change our labelling habits, which, again, we haven't complied with. So these are all pre-existing issues. Yeah. the beat-up is part of a bigger agenda. Well, it is. There are people in Australia who want a Cold War and want, want the trade war that goes with it, right? Um, so it is important what you just said. The, the, those two specifics, they have a, there's already a pre-existing background there, right? To, 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 to connect them to this is, is um, not necessarily right. However, China did react to Australia calling for uh, an inquiry. And why? And I'll, I'll tell you why. Because China, in calling for that inquiry, Australia did it for one reason, to legitimise America's accusations at China, against China. That's why we did it. And I want to play these things. No one was accusing China of anything while the, the pandemic was only in Wuhan. Well, except they were accusing them of being authoritarian and locking down. Mm. Now we're all authoritarian. <laughs> anyway, they weren't accusing them of anything. So when it, was, when it started to spread, though, and other countries started doing much worse, then the accusations started flying, especially from the United States. And the, the, I want to play a clip by General Jack Keane on Fox News 
Um, and he's, he's stating the two main accusations in this clip. So just have a look. Authoritarian repressive regime. And not only did they cover up the origin of the virus and the human to human spread of it, which we well know. But Shannon, to me, the most despicable and outrageous thing they did is that once they knew they had an epidemic on their own hands, they permitted international flights to go all over the world. And that is what gave us the pandemic. So all of these countries are looking at that and say, well, why didn't China shut these flights down? Why were three flights still going into uh, northern Italy from Wuhan City in January, February, and March? So those are the two accusations. China covered up human-to-human transmission, and China locked down Wuhan, but let flights leave Wuhan to go around the rest of the world and infect us all. This is what's accepted as basic truths in America now and, and, and in other places. And in fact, the, the one about human, human transmission has just got crazier because the Taiwan news a few days ago on the 9th of May, and I'll put this up there, and, and other news services reported, I saw it on Sky News the other day, that um, according to German intelligence, on the 21st of January, Xi Jinping called up Tedros, the head of the World Health Organization, and said... Um, please cover up that there's human-to-human transmission. So the headline is, China asks who to cover up coronavirus outbreak. Except, so that's, that's, that's just breaking news this week, right? Except, I'll, I'll hold up the Guardian one. You can read it on the New York Times, 20th of January, 20th, the day before this, supposed, this phone call supposedly happened. The headline, all around the world, China confirms human-to-human transmission of coronavirus. It was a big announcement, right? This, this is made up lies by intelligence agencies, absolutely made up, yet it's accepted as gospel before, by people who with prejudice who want, who, want, who want to believe it. But the most important thing about this question of human-to-human transmission has been put to bed by none other than the Telegraph. Um, in an article just last week, Taiwanese official reveals China suspected human-to-human transmission by January 13. And this tells the story of Taiwan's top expert. And everyone holds up Taiwan as the great example. Taiwan's top expert went to Wuhan, right? And he's there talking to the officials. And they don't know if there's human-to-human transmission. That's the point. But there was this case of a husband and wife. And um, the, the authorities, they don't want to state something they have, don't have proof of, right? But they're having a discussion. And the local authorities said, look, we don't think there is yet. And a Beijing official there said, stepped in and said, no, based on that thing, we have to assume there's human-to-human transmission, right? But they still hadn't confirmed it. But that was enough for the Taiwanese official. So that's the Telegraph article. He went home. Here's the Taipei Times. CDC announces travel alert for Wuhan. And this official, whose name is Chuang Yinqing, said, yesterday told a news conference in Taiwan, 30% of Wuhan patients had no direct exposure to the seafood market. The CDC hopes to clarify whether human-to-human transmission is possible, he said, adding that limited human-to-human transmission was possibly identified during their visit, right? So they weren't... It's only later that Taiwan, at America's request, started beating this up as well. This is the, this is the reporting of the time. It wasn't an issue. They just knew they were trying to figure this out. And in terms of the flight, that came from this guy named Niall Ferguson who wrote this article that Americans picked up and said, oh, look, they locked down Wuhan but let these flights go everywhere... He has admitted, um, after he was challenged by experts on it, he has admitted that 
the data he saw was of flights that were from China Southern flights that were originally flights that always came from Wuhan and no longer did, right? Because they stopped them, they just didn't change the flight numbers. And that's all it was, right? And that's admitted in this article. You can look it up yourself. So it's all a pack of lies, mm -hmm. and we have to correct those lies before this stuff sort of stuff gets and out of control. And reassert our sovereignty. But yeah. unfortunately, we run out of time. Pause for more.